We'll start our study this morning in Exodus 25. If you want to open to that chapter and put your finger there, because we're going to uh, we're going to look at some things in both the New Testament and the Old uh, today. For the next two or three lessons that we have, probably not till the end of the quarter, but at least the next two or three lessons, we're going to be studying the fact that our God is a God of patterns. Um, turn to Hebrews, the eighth chapter, if you would, to start off this morning. Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, beginning at about verse 4. We find the writer there saying, For if he were on earth, he being Jesus, he would not, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And now having read that, if you'll turn back to Exodus 25, we see God, in fact, speaking to Moses in verse 9, where Moses is told, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings, just so you shall make it. Our God is a God of patterns. There are many in the world today that say that there are no patterns to worship, that worship is what you want it to be. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, it's interesting that we talk about things like the table of the Lord, the Lord's table, the table of the Lord, when really we should be talking about the Lord of the table. It's about Jesus. It's not about the table. We talk about the church of Christ, when really we should be talking about the Christ in the church. It's not about the church. It's about Christ. So we do everything as God wants us to do according to pattern. And the pattern that we're studying this week is the pattern of the tabernacle. How does the tabernacle fit into the worship of God? How does the tabernacle lend itself to the coming of the temple of God or the God of the temple? And how does that lead then to church, to the church that Christ established and in the end to heaven itself? You will notice that the size of the tabernacle, and you should have a you should have or be getting a copy of the pattern of the tabernacle, how it was laid out. If you don't have one, raise your hand, we can get one to you. I have exactly two. The tabernacle itself and its physical construction was about fifteen feet wide and about forty-five feet long. If you turn over to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 2, you will notice something about the temple. When Solomon began to build the temple according to the pattern that God had given him to build it. For those of you who've studied that and who know that, what was the temple, what was the size of the temple in relation to the tabernacle? It was exactly twice the size. It was exactly twice the size. So while the tabernacle was 10 cubits wide, 
the tabernacle 10 cubits wide, the temple was 20 cubits. While the tabernacle was 30 cubits long, the temple was 60 cubits long. Every measurement of the temple was double the size of the tabernacle. Our God is a God of patterns. If we look at the physical construction of the tabernacle, how did the children of Israel come to get all of the stuff that they needed to build the tabernacle and to build the priestly garments and to do all the things that they did according to God's pattern? Where did they, where did they get all this stuff? The Egyptians. If you remember back, the Egyptians gave freely to the children of Israel all of the things that they would then use to build the tabernacle. And so, if you look at Exodus 35, look at Exodus 35. And also in Exodus 25, if you're still there, in verse 2. What were the offerings, or how were the offerings to be given? Exodus 25, verse 2 tells us, Everyone who gives it what? Freely. Willingly. There was no demand on the people to give. They were to give willingly. They were to give freely. We're going to take up, this is the fifth Sunday of the month, we're going to take up a collection today for the building of the new, for the building of the new church, the new building. Our God is a God of patterns. Giving is done willingly, not begrudgingly or of necessity. Our God is a God of patterns. So if you look at the tabernacle itself, it was 15, you have your drawing there. It was 15, it was 15 feet wide, just to bring it into modern measurements, not, not laboring with a cubit this morning. 15 feet wide, 45 feet long. The holy place was 15 by 30. And the holy of holies was 15 by 15 by 15. So the people were to give willingly, and they did give willingly, of the materials, of themselves, of, in the, of the building of the tabernacle. They were given instruction on how to move the tabernacle, how to set their tabernacle up, how to take the tabernacle down, how to move it from place to place, and who was to do these various functions. The Levites were instrumental in, in most of this. That's true. Even the furniture within the tabernacle was a pattern. If you go to chapter 26, we look at the tabernacle itself. You can read there about all of the, the, uh, the curtains and the veils and the hangings and the, and the posts and how it was to be carried and what they were to be made of. On and on the record goes to show us. So as we come into the area of the tabernacle for an entrance gate, we come into what's called the outer courtyard. It's the outer courtyard. If our God is a God of, it's truly a God of patterns, what does this outer courtyard represent? What does the outer courtyard represent? We're going to move from largest portion of the tabernacle into the most intimate portion of the tabernacle, or the smallest portion. What does the outer courtyard represent? What would you guess? Sorry? Okay. The outer courtyard would represent the world. It represents the world. Now, there are two things in the outer courtyard. 
There is an altar of burnt offerings, and there is a laver, a pedestal filled with water. What is the altar of burnt offerings representative of in today's world? If this is the outer, if the outer, if the outer courtyard represents the world, what does the offer, what does the altar of burnt offerings represent? I'm sorry? No? 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 What does the writer of the Roman letter tell us that we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service? It is not unreasonable to serve our God. It is reasonable to serve God. So the, burnt, the altar of burnt offerings in this instance in, uh, in the world for the Christian represents that sacrificial spirit, that living sacrifice that we are to make to God to show the world that we are different. Then what about the labor? The water. Most people think baptism, and I, I can see why. But remember when the priest came, the priest washed daily... So you're not baptized daily, but what are you done? What what does happen to you daily? There's a daily renewal. We're covered with Christ's blood through the through the, the mechanism of baptism. And so there's a daily renewal. There's a daily washing that we do. It's a daily renewal of our spirits. Our God is a God of patterns. All right. So we move from the outer courtyard and we move into what's called the holy place. The holy place. First of all, who could go into the holy place? Who could go into the holy place? I'm sorry? Priests and the high priest? So those are the who. That's the who. Who could go into the, who could go into the, the holy place? The priests could go in there. And the high priest could go in there because only the high priest could go into the next part, right? All right? So what do we see inside the holy place? Well, first of all, if the outer courtyard represents the world, what would you guess that the holy place represents? Represents the church. It's the church. What does Paul tell us or what does Peter tell us? That we are a what? We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy priesthood. We're a chosen people. Priests had to come from the tribe of now Levi. The high priest had to come from what? The family of Aaron. Okay? So we have high priests coming from the family of Aaron. We have priests coming from the house of Levi. They were the priests. We are priests. Our God is a God of patterns. Inside the holy place, you'll find three things. Three things. A table of showbread, representative of what? What would the priest do with the table of showbread? What would the priest do with the table of showbread? They would eat it. What is this representative of? The table of showbread. I'm sorry? 
No, it's a table of showbread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So it represents the Lord's Supper. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. One representative of each of the tribes. There's also a menorah or a candelabra or a candlestick. What does that represent? Well, they still use it today, but what does it represent to the Christian today? Christ said, I am the light of the world. Represents the light of God. Represents the light of God. Now, for those of you that like to dabble in the real biblical minutiae, what does the olive oil that burned on the menorah represent? If God is the light of the world, how do we experience the light of the world? Through what? Through the Bible. And who is the one who moves of the Godhead, who moves through the Bible, lighting the way for men? The Holy Spirit. And so the olive oil that burns the candles, or burns the menorah, burns within the menorah, would represent the Holy Spirit. All right, finally we have the altar of incense. What does the altar of incense represent? For those of you who are studying Revelation, I even had a I even had a revela- I even had a revelation quote here. I don't know where it is. It's here somewhere. Our prayers go up to God as a sweet a sweet savor like burning incense. Now, let's drill down into that one just a little bit further. Holy priest, the holy the high priest, holy priest. The high priest was the only one allowed to go into the next venue. How many times a year could that person, could that, could that man, could that man go in there? Once. He could go in there once. What did he do when he went into the Holy of Holies once a year? He would first go to where? He would first go to the altar of sacrifice in the outer courtyard, and he would gather coals along with ground incense, that he would put in a, and I really love this word. It's on the next page. He would put in a censer. The, ah, here it is. The Greek word is a thumatarian. It's a thumatarian. It's the word censer. He would put, if you look at your picture of the, uh, of the priest, He's carrying censer with burning coals and ground incense that he would then take into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle on the altar of God. The altar of incense then represents the prayers that go up to God as a sweet odor for the Christian. That's what we're told in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews has a lot of this corollary uh, evidence that goes along with a lot of this. And so if the church is represented in the holy place and we have the Lord's Supper, we have the light of God with the Holy Spirit guiding us and the altar of incense with our prayers going up to God as a sweet savor. But then you go through the veil. Go through the veil. 
who was the only person that could go through the veil into the Holy of Holies. A high priest. And again, how many times a year? Once to offer sin offering for the people. And we'll talk about some of the other stuff that goes along with that in here in a few minutes. What's inside? What's inside the Holy of Holies? The Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? I'm sorry? Ten Commandments signifying what? God's law. What else? I'm sorry? Aaron's budding rod. Now, why in the world would Aaron's budding rod be in there? Number 16. Korah. He thought his family ought to become priests. He wasn't a Levi. But he thought his family ought to become priests. What did God think about that? God didn't take too kindly to that. Priests were to come from the house of Levi. Korah had no say. And so, they took 12 rods, they left them overnight, and the one that budded was the one that God had said would be the high priest, the family of the high priest. And whose whose rod was that? It was Aaron's rod. And it was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. All right? What's the third and final thing inside the Ark of the Covenant? Pottle of manna, representing... God will feed his people. God will give his people food. What does the Bible say about someone who's close to God? I've never seen a child of God wanting. There's food that God provides. There's law that God provides. There is direction. There is commandment that God provides along with the budding rod and the twelve of the two tablets of stone. Our God is a God of patterns. Overlaying the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the Shekinah, the covering. What was on top of the Shekinah? The mercy seat and the cherubim. And you've seen pictures of you've seen pictures of the cherubim with their wings folded. What does the Holy of Holies represent? What's the Holy of Holies represent? No, church was the outer. Church was the holy place. What does the Holy of Holies represent? All right, let me step back and ask this question then. On the day that Christ was crucified, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, what happened to the veil of the temple that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies? What happened to that? It was rent. How was it rent? Bottom to top? Top to bottom. Who tore that? Who rent that veil? God did. He broke down and allowed access to his children from the church into heaven. The Holy of Holies represents God's heaven on earth. It is where God came and tabernacled with his people. God came and tabernacled with his people in the days of Solomon after the dedication of the temple. It says that God came down and filled the temple. And God tabernacles with his people this morning where two or three are gathered together in my name. What does he say? There I am. 
He's here with us this morning as we worship him in studying his word. Our God is a God of patterns. Don't let anyone tell you in the outside world that our God is just random and that all this is random. Our God is a God of patterns. So we have the world. To enter into the world, yes, some say the labor possibly, you know, represent baptism. I'm not, I, I don't necessarily go along with that. There may be some that do. Baptism, obviously, is the entryway into the church. It stands outside of the church, of the holy place. If you look at your, you look at your drawing there, it's right outside the door into the temple or into the, uh, the holy place. Uh, but I tend, to think that, I tend to think it's just a daily renewal of our purity before God. Yes, ma'am? Well, the two things in the outer courtyard? Well, we're in the world, are we not? But we're not of the world. And so if the Christian is taken, is taken from the outer courtyard into the holy place, a, Christian beco- a person becomes a Christian, there are things that they must do in the world. There are daily things that they must do. They must sacrifice daily. Paul says a living sacrifice. You must, you must present a living sacrifice to God every day. And you must continually wash yourself through prayer, through renewal of your purity to God on a daily basis. So the Christian, the person who wants to become a Christian, must partake or must become these things if they're to live out in the world. Do you have a, do you have a better, is there a better explanation? I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's what I see. You know, that's what I see. The Christian is in the church. We're in the church. We're in the holy place. We have these things that we do. We have access to heaven now because of Christ's sacrifice. That veil was torn down. And now not, not a high priest has to go in there, but Christ the high priest, not after the, order, after the order of Melchizedek. He wasn't a Levite. But after the order of Melchizedek, he entered into the, he entered into the Holy of Holies once for all. And so my reading on that is that the world in this outer courtyard, the Christian that's in the world, must do several things. And one of those things must, must present themselves as a daily sacrifice. Uh, they must sacrifice daily for God, and they must keep themselves in a state of where they're washed and pure. Neil? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead. Sure, sure. Well, we don't. I think there are many of these things you, you don't have. But, I mean, the parallels, the parallels are, if God is a God of patterns, and we know that he is, um, because this began back in Genesis 3 with the pattern of this plan of salvation. You know, while some of these things, well, well I don't think any of this is arbitrary. I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to use that word. Um, but I also think that there is enough, there is enough here that shows us if we use a, if we use comparatives to what the church is supposed to be, if what heaven is supposed to be, access to heaven in the Old Testament was something that people had no really had no idea of. How how did the old how do Old Testament people how did they think about getting to heaven? You know. Oh yeah. No. Sure. 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 So forget everything I said. <laughs> Once again, I'm dogmatic. No, I'm not dogmatic. He, and he has a very good point. I mean, this this is you know this is gen, this is generated. This lesson is generated from the examination of multiple multiple scholars. And if I read something that does not have 
a Bible correspondence or that has something that is not, you know, in line with what the Bible says, well, I'm certainly not, I'm certainly not going to follow that. But I, I think that these things, I think that these things show a pattern. I think they show the pattern. And, you know, while we can't say that those things in the outer courtyard represent that, um, you know, we are told we're supposed to be in the world, uh, but not of the world. We're told that we're supposed to be living sacrifices. And, you know, there's an altar of sacrifice there. So, you know, some of these things, while, you know, while they may be, while they may be gleaned from, from scholarly literature, you know, you can have, are there, are there other things that they could be pointed to? Are there other things that could be said about them? I don't know. Yes, ma'am. Well, and you know, when you look at when you look at various aspects of of the tabernacle, um, you know, again, Hebrews nine uh, is where we find many of the functions and the features that were typical of that time, and the you know, the tabernacle then designed as a house of God. Well, what is the church? The church is a house of God. You know, Acts seventeen twenty four. Um, the most holy place in the tabernacle represents heaven. Hebrews six nineteen. Uh, Hebrews six twenty. Hebrews nine eight. Hebrews nine twenty four. So, you know, there are some things that we can look at, and while, you know, we don't want to be dogmatic about it, there are some things. The holy place is a type of the church, Acts 15, 16, Acts 17, 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 1 Timothy 3, 15. So, as we look at this, we can draw some, we can draw some comparisons. Um, yes, sir? So, having read Hebrews 9... Um, Verses three and four, and I don't want to get into a long drawn deal about this because we could do a whole class on this. What do you notice about Hebrews nine, verses three and four, and Exodus thirty, verse six? If you're a careful Bible reader, or you talk to someone, as I have who is bound and determined to find some kind of contradiction in the Bible, here's one of the first ones they throw up at you. So Exodus 30, verse 6. Exodus 30, verse 6. And you shall put it, and we're talking here about the altar of incense, and you shall put it before the veil, that is, before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Now go to Hebrews 9.4. And behind the second veil, beginning in verse 3. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of covenant. Is that a problem? Is that a problem? Is the Bible saying two different things? Because in Exodus, it's saying it's in front of the, ve- the second veil that goes to the Holy of Holies. But the Hebrew writer is saying behind the second veil is the golden censer. What are we to do? What are we to do? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I spent roughly six hours on this this week just researching this. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It is not a contradiction. It is not a contradiction. Okay? Basically, what most scholars will say is that the altar in Exodus 30, verse 6, 
is represented in a spatial sense, where it was in the tabernacle spatially, while the Hebrew writer is talking about it in a theological sense. Because when the priest goes and opens the veil before the Holy of Holies, what is the closest thing to the the Ark of the Covenant? What is the closest thing to that? That censer, where the prayers of the saints go up. Nothing, in a theological sense, is closer to God than your prayers. Your prayers go up to God each day. And there are, I think I went, I I, I stopped it, I stopped at 12, I think I stopped at 12 different explanations for this. And none of them were really from a from a, a, a theological standpoint, from a, from a, just a logical standpoint, using just rational thought. None of them satisfied me like this, like this one, like this one did. So the one the one scholar that argued for this on the base of inference that on the day of atonement the veil between the holy and the most holy places was was open so that the altar of incense and the ark of the covenant stood in close proximity and that it was from this vantage point that the author of Hebrews wrote so from a spatial standpoint it was closest to the ark but from a theological standpoint it represents the prayers close to God so it can be it can be both. It can be both of these things, from a spatial standpoint in Exodus, and from a theological standpoint uh, in Hebrews. And the writer concludes by saying, "It thus is wholly unwarranted to suggest that a Bible contradiction must exist with reference to the location of the golden uh, altar of incense." So you may run into that at some point. Someone may say, "Well, you know, uh, you, you, talk, you all talk about the tabernacle and everything, and, and here's a here's a here's a contradiction." So um, you should be you should be prepared for someone to talk to talk about that. And so as we talk about the holy place, as we talk about the holy of holies, we look at those various items that are in there, that container of manna uh, in Exodus 16, 33, and 34, uh, tells us that our God sustains us. You know, across the years, the, the, the pot of manna, the container of manna disappeared. When the temple of Solomon was dedicated, there was nothing remaining in the ark except the two tablets of stone. 1 Kings 8, verse 9. God sustained his people under the Mosaic covenant. He sustains his people under the, under the new covenant today, a better covenant. Not by miraculous means, but through the grace of his providence. Philippians 4, verse 19. And then we get to, we get to Korah, and we get to, the, uh, we get to number 16, where we talked about that, uh, that they wanted priests other than those from the house of Levi, and we talked about the budding rod. Um, Objective law, again, the tablets of stone that are in there. Um, the Hebrews had written law. Uh, the lesson for Christ, from Christ, for Christians, uh, is that we too have a sacred uh, codified body of laws that lift us up to a higher level religiously with more religious responsibility than did the people of antiquity. To ignore the laws many do under the guise of what is now called grace and not under law is a fatal mistake, Romans 4.15, 1 Corinthians 9.21. So, Questions, comments, concerns about uh, what we've talked about with regard to the, the tabernacle? Anything that you found that I've missed? Anything that uh, you have heard is different than what we were taught, than we, we've talked about this morning? And again, um, to, to Hiram's point, um, these, are, these are simply things that we look at 
And we see that there are analogs in the Christian life. Yes, sir? Uh-huh. Yeah, that goes, I didn't really go into a lot on uh, how, the, how it was moved and how it was taken down, but there's very clear, there are very clear uh, precepts about how this, all, how this all was taken down, how it was put up. Um, they, would, they, would, uh, they, would, they would move it according to how God told them to move it, and that's probably going to be you know, more along the lines of Exodus, um, further on in, in, in Exodus, probably the 30th or so chapter. Uh, when he talks about you know how how they're transporting the ark, how they move it, I didn't really do a lot on that. If you if we want to talk about that in class, we certainly can. Um, I was just trying to get through a, a general overview. I mean, we could get right down to you know the curtains and how they were put together, and you know how uh, you know how the how the acacia wood was used to make to build the ark, all all of that minutia. But I mean that would you know that would put us into you know the next quarter of, of just looking at something like that on, on such a small scale. So I'm hopeful that, that you all will, will go outside the bounds of class and read those because the, the Bible will answer those questions about how the, how the ark was moved and how it was, um, how it was supposed to be moved. Neil, did you have anything on how they, how they moved the ark? I mean, was there anything that I didn't really go with? I didn't really do that much with it. I'm sorry. How the ark was, how the ark was taken down how it was moved to the next location. We know how it was carried, and we know, we know, you know, we all know about Uzzah, right? We, you do know about Uzzah, right? Touch the ark? Okay. You know you weren't supposed to touch the ark, right? It's not an Indiana Jones movie. It's not supposed to touch the ark. What happened to Uzzah when he touched the ark? What? God struck him dead. Gosh, that seems awful mean. I mean, what was the ark doing? Well, go back initially. What, what's, what's wrong with the scenario that led to Uzzah's death? They were moving it wrong. They were not moving it according to the precepts that God laid down for how to move the ark. What they have the ark on? Had it on a cart with probably some oxen pulling it. And so they're not, they're not, they've not loaded the ark up correctly. They violated God's law. And now they're moving this thing along, and now they hit a rough patch in the road. So some of the roads in Bowling Green, you, you know, this, <laughs> this drop off in them, you can't be found. You lose a tire. But the ark, the, the, the oxen stumbled, and the ark started rocking back and forth. What did Uzzah do? He, he thought he was, I mean, he, he, he was harmless. It was harmless. And all he did was put his hand up to steady it. But he violated God's law. He violated God's law. If you violate one part of the law, what did you violate? The whole law. Thanks be to God that we have a better covenant that we live under today. Next week, you Revelation people will go away. Back to your class. And the rest of y'all can come back and we'll talk about priestly garments and try to talk about what that might what those priestly garments might mean to the children of Israel as they began their worship of God. And the Levitical priesthood, that was just a that's just a freebie thrown in for you guys to be able to, to track how the priests came to be, who the priests were.